The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night in a crowded Cleveland sports arena, there was a raucous crowd to start things off. A C-list celebrity brought in from left field, a key steal, no home runs, and eventually things degraded into a mostly empty venue. It was pretty much the plot of the movie Major League in reverse. But I do realize that if you want to get some unearned compliments for how great your totally boilerplate speech is and how intelligent you are, three languages, four languages, five languages, you just have to steal some of your speech, then everyone will heap the compliments on the non-stolen part and say what a shame it is that you ruined those. I mean, that part where Melania said she loved her husband, Donald J. Trump. That's, that's exactly how she said it. The cutesy pet name she has for him is Donald J. Trump. At least tonight features my favorite convention convention, the Roll Call of States, or as I think of it, the least satisfying way to tour America. Mr. Chairman, I come from the land where we manufacture Pez, nuclear submarines, and the home of the WWE, where men are men and the women are champions. The great state of Connecticut is casting all 28 delegates for the next president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. The Gist podcast that invented the Antan Twig, which features regular segments on bears and vexillology, hereby dedicates its spiel to the entirely unplagiarized portions of the disaster that was last night's RNC, and hereby commend you to this, our interview with the great subject of the new film, The Infiltrator. He's an undercover federal agent. His voice is being disguised, wisely and majestically altered. The next guest of the gist of the United States of America, Robert Mazur. <laughs> Robert Mazur was a federal agent who, while working undercover, brought forth efforts that helped bring down funders for major Colombian drug lords. In doing so, he also busted up what was then the seventh largest privately run bank in the world. He is the subject of the new movie starring Brian Cranston called The Infiltrator. We were offered Cranston. I said, enough with that guy. I want the real Mazur. So he's here. This is not what Robert Mazur sounds like. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Okay, so he doesn't sound like that. I'm talking to him in real life, and he sounds like he really sounds, but what you're hearing is a disguised voice, and you'll soon find out why. Because people, you're still in a dangerous position. There are possibly people who would still want revenge on you. Um, you know, that's kind of an unknown. So um, this really isn't about me. It's not about Bob Mazur. It's not about my face. It's about a group of people who work so hard on a case, and, and I was just one of them, who serve the public and tried to be their eyes and ears in a part of the world that they don't see, but that impacts them in many, many ways. Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel, responsible for 80% of the narcotics flooding into our country. Mazer, you're partnering with Abreu. Come on, let's get to it. That's $1.6 billion every month. I'm an undercover federal agent. Curtain's up. My mission is to infiltrate their organization. Welcome to the United States. <laughs> and then take them down. Tell me in 
the time where the events of this movie take place. What agency were you working for? And did they have a specific goal targeting the Medellin cartel? Or was it more that information came to them and they said, well, let's follow this to see where it leads? Uh, I was working for the U.S. Customs Office of Enforcement, which is now known as Homeland Security Investigations, part of the Department of Homeland Security. Prior to that, I had worked on a multi-agency task force, which was within that agency and IRS and others, uh, called Operation Greenback. And Operation Greenback was to follow the money, to attempt to figure out who are the people who are most involved in the laundering of funds for the Medellin cartel. And in doing so, knowing full well that when you follow the money, it takes you to the command and control of the criminal organization. And so it was our view that that would enable us to be able to prosecute the most meaningful people in the driver's seat of the cartel. Now, was this the strategy because you were customs and you were supposed to look at the banks or because you had a way in to the banks, but you didn't have a way in to, you know, become a low level distributor in the Medellin cartel? Well, we were focusing on the money side. We put this Trojan horse together before the opportunity to engage it occurred. Uh, basically because we had been working, uh, gosh, I had work in, worked for at least a decade at that stage on these types of targets, but had done it in the traditional sense with wiretaps and search warrants and historical witnesses. And, and we just collectively came to the conclusion that the better way to do this was to infiltrate the money laundering system. It started with me volunteering to be a long-term undercover agent, being trained through an undercover school, getting about a year and a half to put together what I think is one of the more sophisticated fronts that's been used in long-term undercover. And, and the different thing about it was that I was embedded in real businesses uh, with the help of a few informants and concerned citizens. And so I was um, a, an active member of an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had an air charter service with a private jet, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East Coast, and even a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So how many people at those companies knew, not maybe necessarily your actual persona, but that you were a federal agent? Two within the investment company, mortgage brokerage business, and the jewelry uh, company. Two within the brokerage firm, the private jet service. In that instance there, um, it was actually, I had two informants who were, um, as we call them in, in the underworld, knockaround guys who yeah. were, you know, they, they didn't work for a particular crew within the mob, but they worked within a family. And um, one of the guys used to be a bodyguard for um, one of the capos. Um, and he was actually paid, played. Um, the character was Dominic yeah. in the movie. Um, that was a real guy who, who um, I had prosecuted previously, um, who went into the witness protection program, who then came out and decided to become a source. And um, I worked with him over a period of time. So in the movie, you, or Cranston, literally busts him out of jail. That that seemed illogical to me. So that didn't quite happen. Didn't quite happen that way. Got I got that. But what is the, I understand the pros of having someone who actually did it. If you want to talk about authenticity, that guy will bring it. And yet there also seemed to be a lot of cons, literally in this case, with an <laughs> ex-con. So why did the pros of having the real guy who maybe could trip you up or maybe is an immoral guy or, you know, it just seemed like there are a lot of unknowns. What are the pros of having that guy do it rather than another federal agent who you could 100% sure would never jeopardize your interests? Well, I didn't allow him to become involved in substantive conversations with the bad guys. He was window dressing. Um, he had a nightclub. He had access to the brokerage firm. He 
believe me, this guy walked in a room, he didn't have to say a word. Yeah. You yeah. knew immediately. And even though I had the pleasure of working with the best undercover agent in the world in Amir Abreu, my partner, even Amir couldn't do that. He had a, a high-end house that I could use. I mean, the government has limited resources, to say the least. And in this instance, one thing that doesn't come through you know, necessarily in the film, but is a fact, the profits we made from laundering money were used to defer the cost of undercover operation. So as we began to get this snowball rolling, um, we had a pretty good bankroll to be able to do stuff. But in the beginning, yeah, uh, we didn't. And you wouldn't believe the uh, apartment that it was it was offered for us to be able to use to have meetings with these guys. We, so, um, so yeah. you, wait, did you say we can't do this here? This will blow my cover. Or yeah, you know, we got to come up with some excuse because there's no way in the world that, that this can be anybody's residence. Yeah. So we turned that into a safe house, and then I got the character known as Dominic in the film inserted as my cousin in the story. Now he had a really nice house, mm -hmm. and you know, my story to the bad guys was, listen, it's my place, but when I'm not there for security, my cousin and his family are allowed to stay there. In the film, you are assigned a fiancé because I think in a good bit of improvisation, you mentioned that you have a fiancé. You want to essentially get out of cheating on your wife, so you in, you invent this fiancé, and then one is thrust upon you, and she works out really well. Now, I know that you worked with a female undercover agent, but was that why she came about? Because in the spur of the moment, you invented a fiancé? It was almost identical to the way that wow. it's portrayed in the film. Uh, we had gone to a men's club, and the last thing I expected was this guy to show up there with... Um, young ladies on, on both arms and he made it very clear to me that um, I had an invitation to the private room and that this is where I was supposed to spend my evening and um, so I told him you know Gonzalo I don't know if you remember this I'm I'm an Italian I'm 37 years old I have no children I found the woman of my life and I appreciate your offer but I have to decline so then now we needed to have somebody there as a right. fiancé if we were going to stay alone. So that's a complication, but also, A, it's quick thinking in the moment, but maybe it, you know, um, burnishes your credentials to him. Maybe, maybe it makes him respect you a little more as having, you know, some moral code. I guarantee you what's very important to these people is honesty, stability, knowledge. Mm -hmm. They don't want anybody being flamboyant. They do not want them to draw attention. They do not want them to have habits that make them appear to be weak. Drug use, heavy alcohol use, loud. Yes. These are things that are not appreciated whatsoever. And that's convenient enough for you because you don't want to be drawing attention to yourself as an undercover agent. Yes. And then I also built in, and again, I, I, I credit my trainers to getting me prepared to think this way. Um, but you need to have ways in, to deflect um, what bad guys may think is some type of indoctrination to their world. Mm -hmm. For six months, I wouldn't meet with them. Amir dealt with them. Your partner. Yep. And we did that purposely because the theory of hard to get can be very attractive to people. So Amir would tell them, well, listen, my boss opened up these accounts and he's willing to help, but he wants to stay in the shadows. He doesn't want, he never wants to meet you guys. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you guys. But I'll tell you what, if you could ever convince him otherwise, you'd be able to launder a river full of money because he has tremendous contacts. Well, six months after that, they were knocking on the door and they wanted to meet me. So when I did meet them, what I explained to them was, listen, I've been given authorization by my family to explore the Latin American markets to see how profitable it would be for us. This isn't for me. This is for my group. 
what I have is a responsibility to my own people to handle this type of money that they generate. And there's nothing I'm ever going to do to compromise that. So if there's anything that you want me to do that's going to jeopardize that, we're not going to do business. That's as simple as that. And that was my excuse for why I would say to them, listen, big money in, big money out. The feds are going to see it. It's going to look like money laundering. You need to leave some money with me. It needs to look like I'm a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. If I do, then that's fine. Well, why were we doing that? Well, for two reasons. One, of course, the more you hold, the more you can seize. But more importantly, if you're holding somebody's money and they're the owner and it's millions of dollars, the chances are you're going to get the opportunity to meet them. They're the beneficial owner of the money. And that's what we want. We want to climb the ladder. And we want to get more people before us and on tape documenting what their rules are within the cartel. There is that old dictum, don't get high on your own supply. And we are talking about drugs, but you didn't get high on drugs. But what about the lifestyle? What about how lavish it was and how all the wealth, you're talking about tables you could land a plane on. What did you do to not get seduced by that? You know, I, I, the best way I can answer that is something that happened not that long ago. I was interviewed by a journalist who showed me a picture that you can find on the Internet. It was $200 million seized from a Mexican-Chinese traffickers home and said you know well this kind of money didn't it tempt you you know and it, what do you see when you look at that and I said I see evidence the bottom line is I did have a heroin but my heroin was information I made the mistake of convincing myself that I had reached through this portal of reality into the underworld at a level that nobody else was ever going to get to and I needed to use 24 7 time to take advantage of that opportunity because the door was going to be closed on that portal in a finite period of time and getting the kind of information that I could get for example in five or six conversations the seizure of more than a ton of cocaine in Chelsea in downtown Manhattan for a person who wants to be a public servant and being part of making a difference there isn't any bigger difference that you can make than getting this kind of information to be able to take that type of action and I'm inside the seventh largest privately held bank, and I'm collecting information that clearly shows that there's a global plan marketing the underworld, not just drug traffickers, but people possessing money seeking secrecy from governments. So that's corrupt politicians, that's arms dealers, that's drug traffickers, terrorists, people uh, dealing with prohibited nations, the whole spectrum. And for me, that was a massive eye-opener. There had never previously been a real international bank power exposed to that. It was phenomenal, and it was the same theme over and over again. Just get us the deposits two times a year, and we'll take care of you. This is very, 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 very interesting to me. <laughs> was it ever a problem, the blurring of your persona and your actual life? I mean, you were doing operations in Tampa. You were living in Tampa. Were there moments where you're like, oh, wait, no, I'm Bob now. Um, I'm, I forgot <laughs> I forgot who I was for a second. Most of my undercover work was done in Miami and New York. Yeah. I was very nervous about doing undercover in Tampa. That would have been a not-so-bright plan. But oddly enough... The one time where running into somebody that could have burned me occurred was in Manhattan, in the lobby of the Helmsley Palace. You know, in that instance, I had done an undercover job a couple of years before. And in that instance, the recordings that I did and the evidence that I gathered 
resulted in the prosecution of the accountant and the attorney, as well as some of the drug people. But And one of the account, the accountant was a guy, his name is Charlie. He decided to cooperate right away. As I've always done with people, um, we play by the rules. I get the evidence that puts you behind bars. You have a path. You either decide that you want to cooperate and then seek substantial assistance or you don't and you go down another road. He went down the substantial assistance road. I stood up for him as did some of the other agents. He wound up with a relatively short sentence, like five years. He had gotten out. I'm in, I'm there with the Benjamin Brett figure next to me and his bodyguard outside in a car with the engine running and we're waiting to get, meet somebody and go. And in the lobby, I hear this booming voice, Bob. And I look up and oh God, it's the accountant from the old undercover operation. And he's walking past toward me really strong. So I'm walking across there as quickly as I can get to him. I didn't know until later that uh, the trafficker was like two steps behind me. And I hug Charlie and I whisper in his ear, Charlie, I'm under, play along. And then I step back and I definitely remember a thick bead of cold sweat going down the middle of my back as I waited to see Charlie's reaction. Yeah. At which time Charlie's just went, he went right and roll. And he said, uh, Bob, Bob, man, the guys in Vegas, they're missing you. You're working too hard. Come out to Caesars. We'll comp you. Bring the boys. We'll have a great time. And so we, we, we just made this stuff up and it, and it and flew. And then I said, well, I'll meet you tomorrow for breakfast here. And then, um, and then we left. So I really came close to losing it right there in, in the Helmsley Palace. And that would have ended the operation if he hadn't done what he did. Robert Mazur infiltrated the Medellin cartel. Now his movie is infiltrating a theater near you. See how I did that? Hey, good to meet you. Thanks so much. Pleasure. And now the spiel. Day one of the RNC was a time of unity. All those in favor say aye. Detailed argumentation. Is Donald Trump a messiah? No. He's just a man. And uplift. The last time I talked to Sean, the night before the terrorist attack, he told me, Mom, I am going to die. Next minute, gunshots. And Jazz is dead. Shots were fired, and our brother Brian was mortally wounded. My son, Sergeant Brandon Mendoza, was killed two years ago. My only child was also killed by an illegal immigrant. I call them illegal aliens. I blame Hillary Clinton personally for the death of my son. Weaponized grief, Charlie Pierce and Esquire called it. What struck me most was how bad it was. Distractions, irrelevancies, massive walkouts. For years, it would drive me nuts that the media, co-conspirators slash co-dependents in these spectacles with no real civic purpose other than two or three speeches, that the media stuck to the lowest possible bar in defining success. And so I think it was for her a real effort, and I think studied effort, to make it clear to her supporters who were, I'm telling you, they were pumped up last night, Steve. The hall was really buzzing. If it played in the room. Play in the room. These are insane fanboys and girls. These are acolytes whose identity, and in many cases, livelihood, depends 
on thinking everything a Democrat or Republican says is fantastic. But this was the first political convention in my lifetime that didn't even play well in the room. In a night devoid of star power or anyone trying to make a really good argument, all the actual senators, Sessions, Cotton, Ernst, actually made good speeches. They're pros. That's what they do. Yet Joni Ernst's speech was greeted with walkouts and distractions. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, so unused to addressing this kind of crowd, paused time and time again to encourage what sounded like one or two would-be chanters, their desultory efforts to get any momentum behind that oh-so-insightful and original observation, USA, USA. Chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security, Mike McCall, didn't do much better. USA. USA. Oh, and one more thing. Speakers kept referring to America as she. She. It's not a boat. Oh, wait. It is a boat, and it's sinking. Americans don't always feel safe, no matter if they're working in a big city, living in a suburb, or rural areas all around this great country. Rudy Giuliani echoed that. Back when he was mayor, Rudy was famous for giving these press conferences where he'd speak off the cuff or maybe with one or two index cards, and he would just go on and on about details in the arcana of government. Yesterday, he gave a PowerPoint presentation, meaning he summoned an insane amount of lung power and pointed a bunch. I'm here to speak to you about a very serious subject, how to make America safe. The vast majority of Americans today do not feel safe. They fear for their children. They fear for themselves. They fear for our police officers. Okay, well, government statistics show that with some blips, crime has decreased every year from 1994 through 2014. The last year for which there are complete stats, violent crime went down, property crime went down every single year, except one small uptick from 2000 to 2001. Maybe the specter being raised was the specter of international terrorists. Let's go back to Rep. Mike McCall. President Reagan once asked, are you better off than you were four years ago? But tonight, let me ask you this question. Are you safer than you were eight years ago? I will contract out the counter-argument on this one to another noted security expert. While Donald Trump was building a reality TV show, my brother was building a security apparatus to keep us safe, and I'm proud of what he did. And he's had the gall to go the after World my Trade mother. Center came he's down had the gall to go after reign. my Remember mother. That. Hold on. Let me finish. He's had the gall to go after my mother. That's not keeping Look, us safe. I won safe. the lottery when I... Thank you, sir. You know, politics are tribal, and all tribes define themselves as the real people, the people who are deserving of hearing their story told, indeed the people whose story can be understood. Last night, the Republican tribe defined itself. Benghazi victims, the parents of those slain by illegal immigrants, anyone who asserts we should feel unsafe. It wasn't a night for economics, but I cannot see how any underemployed factory worker, the person who this election is supposed to be about, how they could look at that and say, wow, great movie about Hillary and Benghazi. I really see myself getting a job sometime soon. 
Tonight's event is branded Making America Work Again. Let's see if the Republican Party can take its own advice. And that's it for today's show. But first, I want to tell you about tomorrow's show. Thinking of doing it in two parts. So listen to an early AM spiel where we'll get rapid response for tonight's day two of the RNC and then a rest of the show in its normal scheduled time. Mary Wilson produces the gist in a style eerily reminiscent of Applejack, Apple Bloom, and their grandma, Granny Smith. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and he's been known to lift ideas from both Tinky Winky and Poe. As a businessman and leader, Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, knows that when gangrene sets in, there's only one thing you do, you lop off the infected limb. Nah, just kidding. You go on TV and quote from old episodes of Voltron. The gist, endeavoring to bring you the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered in one podcast, with the possible exception of when Snagglepuss dined alone. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.